Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. So as I mentioned in the introduction in last week's episode, this podcast is going to be going through a transformation next season. Starting on February the 6th, this will be called the Regenerative Skills Podcast and will take on a shorter format of actionable information that you can use to participate in the regeneration of the land and the communities around you. But even though I'm excited for the changes to come, there's a lot that I'm going to miss about this original show that has taught me so much. I've made some truly incredible connections, not only with the guests of the show through interviews, but through the conversations and friendships that have come from listeners and fans of the program like you. I'm even now working directly with friends who first reach out to me because they love the show, and I've learned so much from the suggestions, insights, and critiques that you listeners have sent in. That's why I want to give you listeners a chance to be featured on the final episode of the Abundant Edge podcast on the 1st of January this new year. All you have to do to be considered is to send in a decent quality audio clip telling me about your favorite memory, favorite episode, or just something that you enjoyed about the show over the last four seasons. Tell me where you're from and where you like to listen to the show and maybe a way that you've applied something that you learned from one of the interviews. The final episode will be a celebration of all of you listening who've supported me and pushed me to keep improving and growing, and I can't wait to hear from you directly. Just send your voice message to info at AbundantEdge.com to share your experience with the regenerative community. The Abundant Earth Foundation was formed as a way for the global permaculture movement to unite and better support one another. We fund projects around the world that are using permaculture, regenerative agriculture, and social entrepreneurial efforts to make a great impact at local and global levels. Our work is funded through grassroots philanthropy, and we invite everyone to join and pool resources to have even more impact. Contributions large and small add up to significant solutions. There's power in numbers, and together we can make a huge difference. To see specific projects that Abundant Earth has helped to fund, visit our Who We Support page on the website at AbundantEarthFoundation.org. Alright, welcome back family and friends. Now that I've wrapped up the series on waterway regeneration, I wanted to transition into a two-episode deep dive into an essential component of water cycle health and how it affects the land by analyzing the most essential component of a healthy ecology, and that of course is soil. Now there have been a ton of new developments and research in this field in a very short time, as scientists and agronomists alike are uncovering new insights into mineral cycles, the soil food web, plant and mycological relationships, and so much more. Now you could sort through a small library of work to get a complete picture of all of these new developments, or you could save time and find them all in one brilliant new book called Regenerative Soil by my good friend Matt Powers, the author of many well-known volumes, including the Permaculture Student Volumes 1 and 2, Unstoppable Enthusiasm, and now even volumes for children, including the newest The Forgotten Food Forest which can all be found on his website along with many online courses at thepermaculturestudent.com. 
But of course, today we'll be focusing on the cutting edge of soil science and how these new discoveries can help you in a very practical way to improve the health of the soil on your land and grow the highest quality food anywhere. In this session, Matt unpacks and simplifies concepts like EH and redox scales, exclusion zone water, and soil amendments for any kind of deficiency. We also talk about how this new information has changed the way he manages his own garden and his advice for some of the best practices for large-scale soil improvement. Now, we cover a whole lot of ground in this episode, so grab your notebooks and I'll hand things over right away to Matt. Hey, Matt, thanks for being with me again. It's really great to chat with you. I know there's been a lot going on and you've got a new book. And so what do you say that we just jump right into soil science and all of the new research that you've done for your book, Regenerative Soils. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So tell me about the research process of writing this book, because there have been a lot of breakthroughs in the study of soil science recently. Yeah. You know, what's wild is I thought I was going to do a certain threshold, a certain amount of research. I thought that I knew what I needed to study that the, the areas that I needed to flesh out essentially in my understanding. But what happened was it was like the back wall of the building that was my thinking was, was knocked down and it was like, this is just a set you're on. <laughs> and I was wow. blown away at how these new metrics and, and ways of measuring the world around us, starting with soil, but even our bodies, trees, our foods, everything. It changed the way I see everything. So, and we always say, you know, soil, you know, relates to everything, but it really profoundly does in so many more ways than we realize. And so I, I began with, you know, catching up on the kind of the edge where I left off when writing The Permaculture Student too, And so I'm reading books that kind of people are familiar with. And then I kind of, I, I, I was studying John Kemp, which many people are familiar with for his Regenerative Ag podcast. He's fabulous. He's rigorous. He's academic. And I kind of started going down the academic published journal rabbit hole, especially the overlap between commercial farmers and market gardeners that are finding out what parts are, are not to be trusted, uh, not to be, to be disregarded essentially, and what parts are, are critical um, to understanding soil. And it's this radical shift that is winnowing out um, this gold uh, that, that we never knew existed, um, that, that, that is allowing us to really dynamically understand soil and revise our, our ways of managing soil and interacting with it in a, in a profound way. So I ended up reading everything that Nature had published on soil, soil life, uh, the rhizosphere, um, mycorrhizal fund, like, I mean, every angle I could possibly think of, I researched and I had a, um, a subscription to nature. So I was reading stuff that was coming out while I was reading the past 20, 30 years. 
And yes, you know, you got to, you grains of salt, the further you go back in time. But at the same time, there are studies that aren't redone because they were so authoritative that are older, that are critical too. So I then began to contact the authors of the published literature, the researchers and the professors from universities all over the world. And I started, you know, talking to them about it. And that's kind of where I am right now in the peer reviewer um, stage, talking with the leading minds globally on all this stuff. And it, it's, it's like going to an incredible program, a school program, but no structure, no like, you know, uh, hierarchy or, or, or someone telling me what to do or anything, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's like the most thrilling educational experience for me. I, I mean, I call my website, you know, the permaculturestudent.com because I am the student and I believe that um, all of us when we're in our best states are essentially like students where we're being observant, reflective. Um, and so it's been a, 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 a long process. It took longer than I expected but it's involved reading thousands of studies and thousands and thousands of pages of information and developing a fluency at a level I didn't expect having to do. <laughs> but I'm grateful that I was put to this higher level. Well, so look, it seems like in our society at the moment, in general, people have a better understanding of technological processes than biological ones. But in this book, you've helped to bridge the understanding by using computers as a metaphor for soil. Could you break down how that works for listeners? Yeah, maybe I should just start with how I thought of that originally. Well, when we look at soil, there's a, there's a few dominant metaphors. And, and I didn't like any of them because it didn't take into account the biology and um, really the organic matter as well, properly. And so I was like, how can I convey this in a way that everyone will understand, especially um, you know, people who have grown up in a world with, with like computers and, and devices and technology. Like you said, we're technologically fluent in our cultures. And so I just had that in mind that I had, and actually this is a goal of, of my work, it's an unstated goal, but one of my metrics for success is that I have a metaphor for every key concept um, because that, that's how we learn and really remember things, I do believe. And so when I learned that clay, sand, and silt are different fraction sizes, and they're, they're, you know, they're like drastically different, like sand's gigantic, you know? Um, but they're different fraction sizes of silicate. And, and like sand, you know, uh, silicon and oxygen, those are the two most abundant elements in the crust of the earth. So, so it's really fascinating when we think about these things on an elemental level, when we actually engage in the chemistry through the biochemistry, through the biological functioning, that we see this amazing, amazing series of events and changes that are critical to all life happening. Um, so 
if we think about it, these silicates are just like the silicon chips, the, you know, the microprocessor chips inside, inside all of the machines that we're all using, that we've grown up using. And essentially they're the hardware but as we, some of us remember the Apple IIe's, you know, in the 80s, you needed a, a, an operation system, an OS, to actually work it. So usually that came in like a floppy disk, you know, and you'd put this little floppy disk in and you'd be able to boot up. And the reality is soil's kind of like that. Uh, and it, it's the organic matter that is the program. And you can put different types of organic matter in and get different kinds of operations. Uh, operating systems, you put in really bacterial dominant, really alkaline stuff, and you're going to get an oxidized alkaline reaction or a predilection towards reaction in the soil. And so it's the programming um, that we put in. And it's also amazingly the battery. So in the soil, organic matter is a reservoir for the protons and electrons that are being reduced which, you know, in chemistry terms, reduction is the addition of, of electrons, which, you know, are negative, um, or yeah, well, protons are positive, but, um, but this reduction is coming down through the plants and it's adding energy into the soil and it's being stored in the organic matter. And we can, we can see this happening in our own gardens. And those of us who have worked with really healthy plants see this soil response and it's absolutely amazing. And it's because when we have that soil organic matter, the plants can actually finish photosynthesis properly. And so people say, you know, soil organic matter is the housing for life and that's true, but it's also the operating system for the users of this, this metaphor. Um, the, the soil organic uh, matter is the housing, but so is the biochar um, that you could add, which is more like hardware to this system. But the fungi, bacteria, nematodes, protozoan, you know, all these different microbes and they're groups that we're talking about because we can get down to the individual level um, and talk about them individually because they, they do have amazing characteristics when you do that. But just in general, all these, these groups of microbes and, and small soil animals are the actual chemists. And because I was able to make the biochemistry connections showing the flow of energy, showing the flow of cycles between all the different minerals, we actually can see now how the biology is the, the primary driver in pH and EH in our soil. And they are the, the drivers of the soil. So they're the ones that are going to be doing the chemistry for us. We, we tried to do the chemistry. We thought we were the users of soil, but we're so ham-fisted at it that um, we've destroyed the soil. Um, with chemical ag. And in, it, it's on the backs of generations of tillage, which also destroys soil. But, but it's really critical to understand that because it's just like our computer, like a 90s PC, we can take off the lid, 
we can go in there and we can add rock dust or biochar to our hardware, increasing the CEC capacity, the cation exchange capacity, but also increasing the paramagnetism. And that holds incredible amounts of energy and water in the soil when we do that. And then we can add soil organic matter using our compost heap or just using plants because plants, healthy plants, actually bring in more soil organic matter in forms that, that participate quicker in humification than, or, than compost does. And compost is energy intensive while, um, and expends energy while plants absorb energy from the sun, turn it into these sugars and these protons that they're releasing along their roots. And it's, it's an overall net gain in energy in a system. If you're measuring all, all the different aspects of the ecology of your farm. So that's, that's what I arrived upon. Um, it really helps <laughs> if you look at the image with it all. So much of what I'm doing in this book is reducing things down to an image that's true so that we can, or a metaphor that's true. Mm. And so that we can hold on to these things and develop a fluency because boy, I mean, I talk about, you know, soil biology over here, but we only know 1% of the soil microbes. And so it's, we gotta be humble. We gotta be careful. And we gotta be just real honest about what we know and don't know and how we can interact with it. And it's been, it's been that process in the research. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, and it gives a good framework to kind of make the connection for things that people are unfamiliar with by giving that metaphor for things that we kind of interact with and understand a bit more on a daily basis. Now, before reading this book, I personally was fairly familiar with the pH scale and how it applies to soil. But one thing that I had no idea about was the, the breakthrough around EH and the concept of redox. I, I think I'm pronouncing that properly. And though this deals with some pretty complex chemistry, which you explain really well in the book, can you give us a simplified way of understanding EH through maybe some methods that people can relate to like the last ones? Absolutely. The cool thing and the kind of... All right, so this is the deal. Give me the deal, Matt. <laughs> in science, we create vocabularies that create these silos. <laughs> there's these silos created in the scientific language that really make things confusing a lot and chemistry is the worst when it comes to a lot of this language but when we look at ph it's the power of hydrogen and i want us to think about hydrogen today right now in terms of water okay so we're looking at ph and we're looking at water and you're like man that h that's in water and it's double in water than air, okay? And so if we have a organic matter, rich peaty muck of, of soil in a swamp, um, that's gonna be acidic. That's gonna be low in low pH, which means it, means it gets a lot of, lot of H. <laughs> and I know it's confusing because up is down it feels like. <laughs> Usually I understand that one through my nose. I can smell it. That, that is so cool. And I, I agree with that. I resonate with the fact that you develop this 
smell, taste, feel, look to things as you start delving into this idea of pH and EH, because they're connected. And they're connected because that H2O. Now, oxidized soils, sandy soils, dried soils, they're gonna be more oxidized and alkaline. That means they're gonna be high on the redox scale, high on the EH, which is um, the, how oxidized things are. And what's really kind of interesting, fascinating, and maybe to us in chemistry class would have been frustrating, but here it makes sense. Electron gaining is the opposite of oxidation. To gain an oxygen is to, to gain an oxygen as an element in a relationship in the soil is to lose electrons. And this is true of all chemistry. But so when we oxidize our soils, when we aerate our soils, we are losing energy from our soils. We are also oxidizing minerals, which makes most of the minerals insoluble to plants. And if we go too far into H2O, then it gets too acidic, right? We waterlog it and then it gets anaerobic and there's not enough oxygen. And what happens here is all those heavy metals become suddenly soluble. So when we look at this, these two scales, these interrelated scales, we actually can put them together and make an X and Y axis and we can make a picture of a, corro a corrosion chart is what it's called, of what is actually happening at a certain temperature and certain concentrations, because things change when you uh, change the temperature um, for each element. So we suddenly go, oh wow, when it's really acidic, this is the form of aluminum that's present. But oh, when it gets you know up to 5.5, it goes into an insoluble form, except at this level of oxidation, except at this, like you can actually see it. It's really incredible um, to use these new tools to diagnose, but to go greater, like you said, into a fluency. You begin to see those sandy soils and go, oh man, any, nit any form of nitrogen that goes on there in a couple hours, is gonna be nitrate. You're gonna to need to water four times as much on this soil to even allow this plant to take up that nitrate and turn it into ammonium internally, which is gonna make the plant more alkaline in the process. So you suddenly start seeing all these domino effects of these things you start to be able to observe without any measurements. Once you start getting fluent in this stuff, you see it. You see the stresses and go, oh, I have a fungal blight. I have a calcium boron or um, uh, uh, silicon deficiency. You, you, you suddenly see what needs to happen. You're like, oh, I need to you know, um, lower the, the EH of the soil. I'm gonna put on some EM and lower it 30 millivolts in a few hours. And you begin to see what needs to be done, how to do it, and you don't need the measurement um, because you can smell it, you can see it, you can feel it. Though I would say that um, the testing is really critical to do 
as an experience and as a, a vital check. Because in the Midwest, there's soils that don't have selenium. Um, you might be in a sandy soil area with very little of much of anything, and you're building from scratch. And, and, and you might have toxicities that are critical to address and are very addressable as I talk about in the book. I mean, it's really incredibly hopeful what we can do um, in the face of some of these crazy things that can be in our soils. Yeah, that's what I got from it too. There's a lot of hope around these ideas that seem super complex based on you know difficult science and I guess, uh, I guess advanced examinations and testing measures, but you always find a way to bring it back to what people can do without those as well. And while those are certainly useful, they can tell you a lot of things that your basic senses can't or just regular observation can't go down to that level of specificity. There are solutions for all this stuff that are approachable for just about everybody. So in practical terms, what does it mean for soil health when we talk about being out of an ideal range for EH or pH? Because like most things in nature, it seems to revolve around a healthy medium, sort of a sweet spot of balance between the extremes of where it can range. To. Great question. So while we look at the soil and we look through pH only, we miss, we miss this range along which a lot of the viruses and pests are traveling. And so while you're like, I'm in the ideal pH, what's going on? Um, and your plants are just being eaten. You might be in the wrong EH and that is exactly what's happening. You might have a deficiency or a toxicity um, or just an element that's a little too high can actually antagonize another and make it unavailable. So um, I, I think it's incredibly um, useful um, to develop an, an understanding. So you have developed the eye for this. And I think the other thing to just dip back to what you were saying is about distinctions. What, one way to define intelligence is to define it as uh, the ability to um, notice or uh, iterate distinctions. And the number of distinctions you are aware of denotes your, how well you understand that thing we're discussing. And what happens when you kind of raw get introduced to this science in a way that's digestible, like color-coded charts that um, are directly related to like high EH and high pH, those are sandy alkaline soils that are oxidized, that are dry, but reduced acidic soils, those are the peat mosses. Those are the bogs. Um, and in between those is, is the ideal, but monitoring <laughs> the EH um, and understanding um, that we, we, we really need to allow for plant roots and soil microbiology to control these things because in the no-till situation, um, they draw it right to hover around neutral in the soil, while in the root zone, they're down to three to four pH. So we really need to let them do their work and their thing, and um, this will all play out really, really well. And while we 
diagnose these things using these charts and we learn to see them, like you can see that the top right of the EHPH chart is not where you wanna be. It locks up all the nutrients and creates some toxicities, but it's mostly deficiency. And you don't wanna be in the bottom left where it's acidic and overly reduced because that's where heavy metals um, toxicity comes in. And of course, um, the, the, the pests, viruses, uh, umocytes, um, uh, bacterial and, 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 and fungal um, pathogens, um, they are all hovering around um, just off the path in the ideal zone. So it's, it's, it's really helpful when you look at the picture. <laughs> And, and it's on, it's actually, if you go look at the pre-order um, website while you're listening to us speak, you can scan through and see all these things that I'm talking about. You can see diagrams. And I think that's what's really critical too about all this stuff I'm talking about is it is new and it requires us to do some mental work to grasp, I feel, and the, the images make it so it readily happens. And so I would, I would just highly recommend that folks um, maybe even pause this and, and pop over there and have it in front of you as I'm saying this, because that chart, you know, it's like we're dodging all these different danger zones um, to get to that sweet spot, but we can do it. Um, and what's incredible is that when we reach that sweet spot and things are really humming, it actually removes the soluble minerals and nutrients from the sol solution of the soil for the most part, because it's all in the economy. The fungi and bacteria are scuttling it around and handing it off and everything's efficient. So it means that our tests would show that we had very little of good things in our soil. We'd show that we were low in everything, which fascinated me because if we apply that to so many of the things that we're worried about currently, if the cycling of carbon increases in its capacity and pace, we'll outpace our release and we'll start having drawdown happen in an aggressive and new, um, kind of like a, a, a Z-axis on the chart here, you know, opening up new possibilities. Man, yeah, this concept is really interesting to me and I look forward to finding new ways to apply it when I actually go out on sites. Now, I want to introduce one of the other concepts that you explore in the book that I had not heard anything about before uh, reading your volume, and that's that of exclusion zone or EZ water. And that's easy, not simple, but easy, the letters. Can you explain what that is and how it occurs and what it means for the soil? Just kind of give me an overview for our listeners. Have you ever seen a water droplet land and then tiny little water droplets skitter on top of the water? I mean, I haven't personally, I've seen it on video, but you gotta get in pretty close to see yeah. that. Yeah, um, have, have you ever, well, so, You've seen, you've probably seen water do weird things on windows too um, when you watch the rain because you were, you're old enough to not have constant entertainment in your childhood. <laughs> um, there's, there's physics going on and there's attraction um, among water droplets and there's something going on there um, that many of us can easily observe and understand. And 
when water skitters on top of water, when, you know, those special reptiles that run across water, they talk about the tension, the surface tension of the water. Now, we, we kind of have this problem in science where we don't closely look at things that are everywhere. The, the weeds that were once Native American foods are very rarely tested for nutritional quality or value. Um, we, we tend to look past these things that are obvious. But what's going on there is, is magnetic, right? There's like a, an ionic magnetic um, force thing going on there that we all can observe. Um, this skittering of a droplet on top of other, of other water. And that's because there is a structural difference in the water. And yes, there is other things going on. The air is obviously, because um, we talk about grounding all the time now, it's been medically proven to help people, right? We, we get those, those uh, you know, negative ions, right? Uh, we're grounding ourselves. Well, the sky, you know, the air, probably the charge, so that water's coming down and there's a, there's a charge difference, right? So there's something going on here. And as we looked closer into, well, I should say Gerald Pollack looked closer into this. He put a tube, a little straw tube into a vat of water. And what he witnessed was that it started to move the water. And it was a hydrophilic tube meaning it loves water, right? So um, in nature, like almost everything is hydrophilic, uh, it loves water. And so what happens, especially in sunlight, think about this, the water polarizes on surfaces. And so this polarity that forms changes the structure of water from H2O into H3O2. And it forms a lattice, a crystalline structure. And we're familiar with this if you've studied colloids or gels at all. Um, some of those crystalline structures are formed. Some of them are not formed in orderly. But this is an orderly, I think a, a package just arrived. My dogs like to want <laughs> um, but it forms this orderly lattice work and it does something very peculiar. It actually can conduct electrons and protons. And so it's a semiconductor and a superconductor. So it can conduct these things, but it also can do it instantaneously. And so it's like this added barrier onto soil roots and then it change it changes like the way we view soil because the more easy water you can form the more holding capacity your soil has right because it's forming this lattice work of gel so this happens on the surface to a degree just because the sunlight's there there's particles it's happening on roots because they're um, hydrophilic and they're helping roots conduct out these protons out into the soil. And it's, it's incredible because of a few different things. 
This is what explains how trees using their trans uh, transpiration, their, the water transport in their in their um, the plant body, to in less than you know four seconds conduct uh, an element or a molecule from the root tip to a plant like leaf, and it's. And it's, it's like mm -hmm. a mag, and this is John Kemp's metaphor. I, I should give him credit from our last conversation, but it's like a maglev train upward, an elevator. And so it's zooming, and we've all played with magnets and felt that, 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 that feeling of just, it just can go. There's no friction, it's just zoom, effortless. That's what's happening. And because that's how fast these things can travel through these pathways when we have soil life that's robust, when we have the water to do the things that they can do, it's no surprise that we're conducting, and I say conduct because that's how these things are, it's bioelectric, they're conducting, you know, minerals and, 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 and elements and nutrients all over the place very quickly across fields between between plants because i mean yeah i won't get too far into it but but um like brady rhizobia can share the nitrogen it's fixing um other rhizobia uh, uh that, that that has been documented so far i, I cannot and so th these things are happening in real time um they're happening so fast that we, we definitely probably can't track them unless we are doing like this test where we put a radioactive uh, isotope into a plant root area and they suck it up and we track, you know, where it went uh, because it is happening so ridiculously fast and it's so complicated and powerful when you look at it on a, you know, a uh, nanometer, nanometer. <laughs> Um, kind of process that that uh, it can be humbling, but that's what's going on. Is you have the ability to step into the complexity, but to recognize it in a, a way that's functionally pragmatic. You can see how these things work; they're knowable. Um, and I, 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 this is such this is a tangent, but it's connected. The author of Born on a Blue Day, Daniel Tammet, I believe his name is, he he can recite pi. You know, he's internalized this incredible mathematical thing, and it, yeah, he's on the spectrum of autism. But that's you know, and being able to internalize these great things and then instinctually understand them at such a great depth means that all of us have this capacity to make science and math and even data into these pragmatic, easy to understand, actionable observations. And so um, I, I really, really value this experience that I've had personally because I see the world completely different. I, I'm, I, I'm excited to talk to Dr. Zach Bush about uh, uh, about what's going on in my gut uh, um, from an EH perspective now, from a redox perspective, because I know that's what he figured mm -hmm. out. And that's what his breakthrough is, is that he is moving in a new modality and he's changing the charge on the actual membranes of the human cell, which literally is 
what we're talking about here. So I am, I am extremely excited, not just for, for soil, but for me personally, because this is a breakthrough that it's going to interconnect our bodies to the soil in a way that is going to never going to part it. We're never in the future, we're never going to be able to separate our human health from the soil, from the research that is being done right now. And the book leads you to that in a way that doesn't like point it out in a way that allows you to just understand the data and go, wait, but doesn't this mean that? Uh (laughs) And I think that's the best. Well, because when it comes down to it, we're all made of the same stuff. And when we're dealing with things on a chemical and a physics sort of analytical way of breaking down the elements, the building blocks that make up all life, there are crossovers among things that support the natural function of protozoa as do the cells in a human body. And by being able to understand how they transfer energy and move nutrients and permeate cell walls like you've explored in this book. Obviously, this is through a lens of the health and applications of rebuilding and regenerating soils, but this is applicable to all forms of life as well. Yeah, I immediately understood why I was always felt healed by sauerkraut because it's a fermentation, there's no oxygen, and it's extraordinarily reduced. So it's high in electrons. So me taking it in gives me cellular energy, which allows me to be more efficient at digesting my food. (laughs) Which is crazy cool. That's one thing that you and I was connected on because we've both kind of suffered from digestive problems and come to a lot of similar conclusions about the you know, the treatment of the gut biome and figuring out dietary ways to rejuvenate our energy and uh, fix the digestive process and being able to see it through a lens like this, through the exchange of electrons, like you're mentioning, is a, is a really cool analogy for it. Yeah, I, I, and again, I'm not a doctor, um, but I'm excited to kind of ask some just incredible questions that I now have um, to someone uh, who is studying this. And I feel like that's what truth does. It opens up so many more questions. Well, so along those lines, like we've got into some pretty heady new discoveries in biology and in soil, but at the same time, the book has a long list of actions that people can take to amend their soil, depending on whatever challenges they face, whether they want to dive deep into the academic learning of it, or just want to work on the practical side. So are there any soil treatments that kind of apply broadly to just about any deficiency condition? Or is the key really figuring out the context of what you're dealing with and the appropriate amendments for for that context? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that the common answer three years ago would have been uh, compost. But I don't think that's such an easy answer any longer. Um, I would say healthy photosynthesizing and fully photosynthesizing plants are going to change soil. And if you get the proper ones, ones that are like biotillage, right? Uh, Biofertilizer, Mm -hmm. then you're going to change your soil faster. 
And so I, and, and, and caveat, right? I, I'm constantly using effective microbes, EM, um, that I brew here at home. And I have some that I've gotten from Terraganics and I love them. I've gotten some from Quatamak Via who learned to do exactly what they're doing at Terraganics and the same like workshop as the owner of Terraganics and we're all friends. Um, and I, I, I really use it and brew it. I've got 20 gallons behind me right now in big barrels and that reduces our soil. I'm in an oxidized area. I'm in a, you know, a heavy clay area. And so I go from sand to clay, you know? <laughs> and so by bringing in consistent EM, I'm kind of reminding the, the EH pH to head back towards um, pH 6.5 to seven in the ideal zone of EH as well, which is 400 to 450 millivolts. And so I'm constantly kind of like knocking on that door being like, up, 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 get back down there, you know? And so it's really an incredibly useful amendment that we can create at home on our own. We can add to the consortium. The consortium is an excellent consortium. Um, but I add rhizophasis interdeces as a spirillium, um, uh, I add uh, I, I add other things in order to just have more microbes that I mean I, I like bringing in uh, phosphorus solubilizers I like bringing in um, free living nitrogen uh, fixers I like bringing endophytic nitrogen fixers I like I like bringing in a lot of different things so. EM is kind of the basis with which I add all those things in. It's, it's going to turn any nitrogenous soluble matter that I bring into the equation into an amino acid if I leave it alone for three days. And that way I don't shock my plants and say, here, convert this nitrogen. Instead, I give them an amino acid and then it gives them an immediate mm. boost of energy um, just by giving them amino acids. Uh, and there's, you know, there's always amino acids as plant metabolite, right? but this is specific by giving them night extra nitrogen causing this. But then at the same time, I'm also adding all this energy in, and then I'm adding purple non-sulfur bacteria, which is one of the consortium members of EM. And I mean, they're, they're just going to be giving, literally giving out energy because they're photosynthesizers. So, uh, and then you have um, uh, Saccharomyces um, cerveza, which is, uh, I always butcher pronunciation, so forgive me on all that. But um, it's baker's yeast. Because you did just say beer in, in right, the language right. I speak here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's baker's yeast or brewer's <laughs> yeast, beer yeast, right? Um, but the, the wild yeah, yeah. thing is that's actually a, a plant growth promoting um, uh, microbe. So, and it's endophytic. So this entire time, um, we're adding this to these drinks when in fact it's if we have healthy soils and we're participating in, in just regenerative soil practices, it's already in the soil. It'll already be in your plants. So this is how in, in days of yore, you know, they would just stomp the grapes and then they'd have wine because there was endophytic microbes doing all that mm -hmm. for them. Um, so, so I really value EM as kind of the mother culture of all my cultures. Uh, I, I, I've, I, I just find it really incredible. 
And then I would say biochar and rock dust, uh, they're not really techniques or methods unless you're making your own biochar, which is, you know, you can do conservation burn on your own and it's actually surprisingly efficient um, for an open burn. And you can completely change your soil. So I would say that EM, healthy plants, um, and that means like, you know, foliar feeding with kelp and EM regularly uh, for me uh, from what I've seen uh, in the research. Um, and then increasing the hardware of the soil. So that means we're gonna be, we're gonna be adding rock dusts, which increases the paramagnetism and um, brings in a lot of uh, surface area um, to your soil because it's so fine. Um, which, which again, you know, that surface area is incredibly powerful. This is why clay has that CEC capacity because it's fine in comparison to the sand, which is this giant block, <laughs> essentially. So I would say that's the thing to do. I mean, so of all these methods that you've talked about, and certainly you've outlined a ton in the book, everything from Hugel culture to recipes for the EMs that you just talked about, which ones do you think apply on the broadest scale? Because a lot of these are kind of not just time intensive or potentially machine intensive or ingredient intensive as far as bringing imports from elsewhere onto your land in order to rejuvenate the soil. But like, do you think it's, it's mostly up to the plants, things like cover crops, getting the proper plant life into the soil that are the most cost effective ways to regenerate soils on a really broad scale? Or do you still think that certain types of amendments and imports are going to be the most effective? Yeah, that's a great question. So while we would love for rock dust to be everywhere, it's not. Um, but if you can grow it and turn it into biochar, you can start changing your hardware. Um, and if you can do long-term compost, this is the breakthrough that um, most people weren't expecting, but maybe we should have expected. The, the hot, fast, quick and dirty composting doesn't give us the best product, which I mean, you know, good things come to those who wait, right? So there is one form of compost that is the best form of compost, it takes a year and they're, they're bio, they're, it's done in a giant bioreactor and you can do it smaller but they're doing chimneys in it, perforated pipes. Yeah, you're talking about the Johnson Sioux bioreactor. Yeah, and Elaine Ingham's adapted her, her hot and fast style to be passive static aeration with chimneys only turning twice. So this is, this is, a, this is a thing that's taking everyone um, uh, by storm and everyone's adapting very quickly because when you look at EH, you look at oxidation, you look at aeration, you realize that the aerated aerobic compost heap is oxidized, alkaline, bacterial, and they're going, it's going, amendments of that in high enough doses will lock up the nutrients in the soil. So we don't want that. Um, and it will also make it vegetative growth predominantly, leaving very little for reproductive growth. So it's incredibly important that um, we recognize that composting is valuable. We want soil organic matter. But if you do a hot compost, let that thing sit. 
let it become fungal. And even just a few weeks, we'll start changing it to be more fungal as Dr. Elaine Ingham has always said that you can do. And is that the main thing that happens when you leave it longer like that? The, the fungi course, and the mycorrhizal of course, activity is really the, the difference? Of course, because the thing is mycorrhizal fungi, you know, they A, need plant roots and B, they need it to not be disturbed. So the fungi really can't do its work until things stop. And because of the secession of the soil, because um, all, photosynthesis, synthesis, all photosynthesis in soil and on land is acidifying. In water, it's oxidizing because the oxygen they release goes into the water, which makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like along these lines of recommendations for people um, and takeaways from the book, what are some of the major things that changed about your perspective and the way that you interact with your own soils after doing all of this research? Well, I was like the compost man. Um, Elaine Ingham has been long been a mentor and friend, still is. And many of my students have taken her courses. And, and I now use the plants much more biochar and rock dust. So, I mean, you can use 9% um, of the soil profile in biochar, like you can amend to 9%. And that it, it holds three times as much water in its mass than its mass, um, the biochar. And so I just, I just have really started to look at my soil completely different. And then also understanding that unless my soil is in a certain condition, it's a waste of money and water until I get it to that spot if I'm trying to do certain things. So if I'm like, oh, I want a high yield, I want beautiful crops, I want nutrient dense, and the soil's not there yet, well, all those goals need to be tabled until that soil is ready. And so I've always been a soil grower. I've always like kind of companion cover cropped everything. And uh, it looks wild, it looks bushy, it looks fun. Uh, people uh, have really, you know, latched onto that. But now I'm kind of to the point where it's like, I need to lean harder into that and use the plants as these incredible antenna, which they are for energy, both electromagnetic and also taking in the sun's, uh, you know, solar radiation and transmitting it to other forms um, of, of energy and conducting that energy into the soil in ways that have long term staying power. Because when we have stressed plants, they release monosaccharides. And I know it's we have that metaphor of the soil that is cakes and cookies, exudates. Well, there's excretions and exudates too. And exudation is like a shotgun blast at first until they start a conversation with an individual microbe and then it gets sophisticated. And it's the shotgun blasts of monosaccharides, simple sugars that draws all the pests, all the bad things and lets the soil food web know, hey, can you, you know, help me like, step out, bow out quickly. And, and it's polysaccharides from 
the healthy plants that are immune to pests um, up to a certain threshold, they start beginning to make polysaccharides. And then as they head up towards higher levels of immunity, get this, they reinvest in the soil lipids, fats that they developed internally. So, I mean, I get the photosynthesis, they're, they're, you know, they're investing in the soil, they get this great return, but now at their highest levels of health, what do they do with their investment? They don't, they, yes, they, they, they invest in their seed and fruit, no doubt, but this return of lipids, of fats to the soil, along with polysaccharides, which are long chains of carbon, long, long complex sugars, and it, it, it amplifies, just like you would a guitar amplifier, it amplifies soil humification through mycorrhizal fungi. So I, I can't kind of get away from that. And so I'm like, you gotta go with the good plants and then you gotta feed your plants. So I wanna hold water in there as much as possible because that automatically, like we talked about, lowers the pH because you got that hydrogen and then holds more mm -hmm. water there's more H than O, and it's also not a form of oxygen that people, I mean, not people, but microbes are using to oxidize things with. Um, and so you end up with a more, more, more uh, lower pH, um, more reduced soil. And so I, I, would, I would just be like I do now, foliar feeding things consistently, letting the plants do the work um, and moving outward in a nucleic fashion. So I did the thing that I usually do, which is go as big as possible, but then I ran out of water. And then <laughs> knowing what I know now, it's not so cool to be like, oh, look at this plant. You know, I barely gave it any water. It still gives me seeds and it's this hearty thing. And that's cool, you know, but, but that doesn't help the world. That doesn't help your future doesn't help with nutrient density. You know what I mean? It just shows that it could happen. And, and so I, I, I lost my, um, my, 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 I lost my passion for watching um, the extremes uh, and like proving what's possible at the extremes because I realized, like you said, what can scale up, um, what can scale up is also what's easiest and most powerful for us on the one-to-one -one basis at the gardening level. And that's- Well, it sounds like you really just put all your efforts there into the soil more than, you know, just the abundance of plants and all the potential of what can grow in a space and in the extremes of conditions like you mentioned. And by putting or redoubling your efforts just on the soil, you've seen not only you know, the possibility of what can come out of it, but some of the most beautiful expressions of those plants because they really have what they need to thrive. Yeah, it's been actually kind of interesting. Um, this is the first year that I've had melons that tasted better than any melon I've ever eaten from a store or otherwise. This was, mm. the, yeah. And this was the first year that like, growing tomatoes was just the easiest thing in the world like it's easy because yeah yeah and and it's and and i also understand why peppers and and tomatoes are doing so well is because my soil is at that eh and and ph range that it, it favors um it favors uh, nightshades 
So if we look at the classic Elaine Ingham chart that I, uh, that I adapted with her for my books, um, we're like two or three sections in from the left when we ideally need to be two to maybe even three more levels down. So it, it, it kind of, it, it kind of, it's humbling, but it's such a deep, like it's, I'm deeply informed now about what's possible, why certain things are the way they are and what needs to happen to climb this mountain, right, that I'm working on. I, I'm on 90 acres on top of a mountain, um, but it, there, there's not enough water. The well goes dry for three months of the year. It's a super challenging site. Um, and so I'm just, uh, I'm really understanding what's possible and uh, how it needs to move forward. Like for instance, we're gonna be doing large scale biochar. I'm gonna be watering it down probably with, um, oh, well, pre-treating it, I should say, with uh, iron sulfate so that when I make this biochar, it's all highly magnetic. So it will hold nutrients mm. and water in the soil at an incredible level. And it will also reduce the fire um, potential of this landscape just by holding more water, but also by taking out all the brush and all the, um, the, 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 the overgrowth, which is, you know, I'm in, in the fire area. I, you know, we had a two acre fire on our road two weeks ago. So it's, we are in the most dangerous possible place um, that we could be, it feels like. Um, often because we're on a very long road off of a very long backcountry road. And like the day after, you know, and I, I got nothing but love for everyone. You know, that's me. I love people. Um, but after that two acre fire, you know, driving down the road and seeing someone walk along the road smoking a cigarette, uh, was like, yeah, I can like, only imagine know, like scratch, like a chalkboard for me. Like, that's what it is. And I, <laughs> I try not to get intense, right? Yeah, Cause then you start spiraling and then you start looking and scrolling through the news and all that. Um, but the reality is we can change these landscapes. These landscapes are extraordinarily stressed. They were all, and this is something that I have not really revealed publicly many places, but California was all logged and the way loggers get logs down is they create these roads that point towards the actual watershed downward. So they increase the runoff water flow off the mountains, drying them right. out. And this happened decades ago. On decades. top of removing all that root matter and everything else that holds the soil together. Yeah. And so we suddenly have a situation where we have people, yeah, they held back fire, no doubt, but they literally re-engineered the landscape, the opposite of key line design, folks. They did opposite of swales. <laughs> they did, let's destroy and gully the entire California landscape in order to get these logs down faster and then never fixed it. So that's, that's another thing. And it's hard legally. And people who are in California will know what I'm talking about. But it's really hard legally um, to do some of this work. And it's hard um, permitting-wise, cost-wise, 
to to pay for it because they cost so much to do anything to just get the permission you have to pay to get permission that when you get down to doing it it's 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 just like you already lost all your money and i know so many people yeah. that have tried this started the process and then they make up things in the middle of it and i'm talking about family members people i know dearly who had homes that they were going to build in california and instead were continuously extorted by local politicians um, and like bureaucrats out of their ability to do this. And this is the number one reason we have homeless is that it is impossible to build affordable homes in California, Washington, and Oregon. Anyway, sorry hmm. about that tangent, but it's like- No, it's okay. It's all relevant topics, yeah. Yeah, and permaculture, we talk about creating affordable housing one of my good friends, man, I'm getting chills talking about him. I love this guy. Miguel Elliott can make homes for basically nothing out of clay, which is everywhere here. And these houses are fireproof, yet they're illegal. And they're, they're mm -hmm. earthquake proof, fireproof. They're cheap. They're honorable structures that people can create themselves with their hands and have dignity and self-respect man whoo i feel like my heart is so stirred deeply by the plight that we are all in right now because it's like their situation is as tenuous as ours is on perched on this mountaintop with these fires happening our whole society in various ways some overlapping and may feel unfair to those people but it is this poor design, it's this lack of understanding with the way that people work, with the way that nature works, and the way that things work over time that has led us to this, this very scary precipice. But I know that it is through podcasts like this and, and, and work like the work I'm doing and, and many other people are, are, are working on sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes, you know, uh, trying to tell everyone about it. Um, but it's this work that we're all engaged in together to try to make sense of our world again, to try to get us back on the path of just wanting to make things right, because we can. Because I feel like for years now, people have be believed, now they believe that this rumor that we can't do anything to make things better, that this is the way politics are, this is the way the world is, this is the way California is. When we are active participants, we have power and the world and people, their hearts, their minds are responsive. Hmm. Just sit with the weight for that a little bit and kind of meditate on the concept of what it means on a day-to-day -day level for people to internalize that and do the work to reconnect both at the community level to the environment, even, you know, seemingly unrelated disciplines, economics, politics, it all connects and it's all in drastic need of change for us to really move forward. And so on that note, Matt, <laughs> let's wrap things up, but can you give our listeners some direction as to where they can go to find out more, find your book and get in touch. Absolutely. 
Well, my email is matt at thepermaculturestudent.com. And you can feel free to reach out to me with any questions that you have or anything else. And my website is thepermaculturestudent.com. And you can pre-order both the physical book and the ebook on that site. And there's also free books. I, the last two big Kickstarters that I did, Permaculture Student 1 and 2, I've now given those away for free to the public because I feel like it was a gift to me to create them. And now it's a gift I can give back. And so I really care about that. I was a high school teacher. I'm a dad. Um, I, I really care about our community, um, our global community as well. So there are resources on there, free courses, and, and, you know, if you're homeschooling or if you've got young ones, there's fun stuff on there too as well. So that's the permaculturestudent.com. And you can reach out to me at matt at the permaculturestudent.com. Thank you so much, Oliver. Man, it was wonderful to connect again, Matt. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for the work that you do and all those great resources that you put out there. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.